Good evening. I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. And as you are doing so, let me just again express my profound gratitude to you all for the warm welcome you've given me and my wife and three children. It has been a delight uh, to be with you. One of the things I love being a Christian is that no matter where you go in the world, when you gather with the saints, you're with family. It's a wonderful thing being a Christian so grateful to God for the ministry of your pastor, uh, Dr. Payne. I am grateful for him as a fellow uh, teaching elder in the Presbyterian Church in America, as well as an uh, older brother in the faith and a friend. Uh, it's been a joy for me also to get to know, uh, don't see him now, but get to know Michael as well, and I have enjoyed uh, getting to know him a little bit better and appreciate his ministry among you. And also thank you to Rachel for her support and excellent care of me, getting me ready and on track to be with you. It's been great to see also just your elders and deacons who are clearly caring for you. And then one of the takeaways for me has just been the, the sights and sounds of watching you all love on, love on each other. Uh, it's one of the great things. It's the hum of God's people, the sound of God's people caring for one another. So I certainly uh, wish every blessing upon you uh, as you continue your work together. So the best way I know how to encourage you is just to spend as much time as we can in God's Word together. So this evening, we'll be looking at 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, and then we'll be also looking at uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, the beginning and end of 1 Peter. So let's pick up in 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And then turn over with me to 1 Peter chapter 5, and we'll look at the conclusion. This is 1 Peter 5, beginning in verse 12. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God, stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Amen 
And this ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he add his blessing to us here this evening. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. And so by your Holy Spirit, would you sanctify us in your truth? We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, 1 Peter is the Bible's version of the Pilgrim's Progress. Who all loves Pilgrim's Progress? Well, I think you will love 1 Peter. Edmund Clowney, the uh, longtime and former president of Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, calls 1 Peter a traveler's guide for Christian pilgrims. A traveler's guide for Christian pilgrims. You see, 1 Peter is a book of hope in the midst of suffering as you are traveling from this world to the next, to the celestial city, as Bunyan would have it. But you see, unlike Bunyan's tale, this letter is no allegory. You see, the people referred to in this epistle were like you. They were real people, men, women, and boys and girls who suffered in the name of Jesus Christ. And they experienced real pain in the real world, real turmoil without and real fears from within. But you see, like Christian in Bunyan's classic, this world was not their home. Your world, your home is not this world. You see, they too were pilgrims in a foreign land. So 1 Peter is a guide for pilgrims who are traveling from this world to the next. And so this evening, I want to look at this epistle by framing it in terms of the bookends, the beginning and the end, the greeting and the closing salutation. You see, we tend to think of passages like these as mere formalities of the Greco-Roman world. This follows a standard format of writing a letter, much like you do an email. You might say, hey, dear friend, greetings from Central Florida I trust you're doing well. I was thinking about you today, so I thought I'd send you a note. All the best, Tweedale. Right? We have a standard formula when we write letters or emails or texts or so on. And so we can fall into the trap of seeing these introductions and these conclusions as following a mere formality. And yet... I think these verses provide us a wealth of encouragement as we face a world with real problems. You see, too often we quickly gloss over the opening and closing of letters in order to get to the supposed real meat of God's Word. Yet, friends, we have to remember that all Scripture is inspired by God and therefore profitable for you. It is good for your instruction and edification. 
You see, it's not just the doctrinal portions of Scripture or the narrative passages or the parables that are inspired. No, all Scripture is given to us by God, and that includes the bits that we don't like or the parts that we gloss over. The historical narratives, the genealogies, the land divisions, as well as the greetings and conclusions of letters. You see, every word, every verse, every section, every chapter, every book of the Bible has been breathed out by God and given to you for your growth in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this evening, what I want to do is look at the introduction and conclusion of 1 Peter, and I want to then draw out at least three applications from that. So we'll consider some introductory matters, and then we'll pull out some application for you as the people of God. So in the first place, I want you to see that Peter's letter is actually written for the purpose of encouraging Christian pilgrims like you and like me who are traveling from this world to the next. So Peter's purpose in writing this letter is actually to encourage students. I was actually asking my students, uh, I said students, didn't I? I? I was encouraging my students this week and I was asking them, what does it mean to encourage? What does it actually mean to encourage? And it's actually quite simple, isn't it? To encourage someone is actually to put courage in them in the face of adversity. No matter what they are facing, you want to put courage in someone that they might stand firm and endure whatever God has put in front of them. That is not schmaltzy, is it? Sometimes we think of encouragement as a light word, as a fairly superficial word, But encouragement is one of the most important ministries we can have with our brothers and sisters in Christ. So I'm going to make an argument that Peter is actually writing this letter for the purpose of encouraging Christian pilgrims. And I want to do so by simply asking a couple of questions. One, who wrote this epistle? Two, who was the original audience? And then three, why was it written? First, who wrote this epistle? Well, the short answer to it is the apostle of hope, that is Peter, blundering Peter himself. We know from the opening words of this letter that it was written by Peter, who is an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, throughout church history, Peter has been known as the apostle of hope, the apostle of hope. You see, in the Bible, hope is confident in concrete realities. Not fleeting hope in something that might be, but hope is the anchoring of your faith in what is and always will be. So here we have Peter who is writing as the apostle of hope, and it doesn't take long when reading this epistle to notice how important the theme of hope is for him. Much like Paul's letter to the Philippians is filled with joy, even though it's written in prison, so too Peter's letter is filled with hope, even though it's speaking to Christians who are suffering displacement and discouragement in their life. Just 
notice a couple of things here in this letter. So, for example, in chapter 1, verse 3, Peter writes about a living hope. This is one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has called us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And then in chapter 1, verse 13, Peter tells us to set our hope fully on God's grace. He says, therefore, prepare your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's at the end of time. And then again in chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, Peter exhorts us to hope in God because of what he has sovereignly done for us because of Jesus. He says in chapter 1, verse 20, Christ, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God and raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Your hope is steadfast and anchored in God, like the God who created galaxies and the God who raised Jesus from the dead is the God who knows the hair on your head or the lack thereof. He is your God. And we know, of course, Peter reflects on this hope in 1 Peter 3, 15, when he says, we are to always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks us for the what? Hope that is within us. During college football season, we know how bankrupt hope is, right? I have been cheering on the Florida Gators since before I was born, all right? Uh, I love the Gators, and somebody can say, you know, are the Gators going to beat Florida State? And I'm going to say, I hope so, right? But it's a fleeting, it's a fleeting thought, right? It's a fleeting thought. But as Christians, our hope is in a concrete reality. We have been born again to a living hope. We do not have a dead hope and a dead Savior, friends. We have a living hope in a living Savior, who is at the right hand of God now. And because of that, you have hope even beyond the grave. Even when this world falls apart and your life is fraying at the seams, the one thing that is the most real thing in your life is at the right hand of the Father and He will never be taken from you. You have a living, a living hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. That resurrection changes everything. Sin, sin will not have dominion over you. It's a glorious, glorious reality. And Peter knew this, knew this himself. He was a trophy of hope, wasn't he? Like if Peter can make it, so can I, right? This is why we love him so much. Think about over the course of his life how much he flubbed the dub. Right? Think about it. So, for example, in Matthew 14, Peter was overwhelmed by the crashing waves when Jesus met him walking on the water. He just couldn't quite hack it. 
In Matthew 16, he correctly says that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and then he does the unthinkable and actually rebukes Jesus for saying that he was going to come and die on the cross, right? And he says, far be it, Lord. No, Lord, you can't do that. He rebukes Jesus. And then in John 18, he tries to take matters into his own hands, and he cuts the ear off the Roman soldier, even though Jesus taught him that his kingdom was not of this world. And then, of course, most tragically of all, in Mark 14, Peter denies Christ not once, not twice, but three times, and even curses the name of Jesus, even though he vowed he would never forsake the Savior. You see, Peter is a man much like us. He often stumbled and bumbled about. He acted brashly. He frequently stuck his foot in his mouth. Peter usually meant well, but he often fell short of the mark. And yet, the story of Peter is beautiful is because it reminds us that God uses His disciples and He builds His church not because of us. More often than not, it's in spite of us, and yet, remarkably, it's still through us. Despite our fumbling and bumbling, God graciously and kindly uses His people to build His church. And we know that because after Peter's repentance of blaspheming and denying the Savior... He is used 50 days later to preach one of the most remarkable revival sermons in the history of the world at Pentecost. It's remarkable. It's a testimony of God's grace in Peter's life, not the brilliance of his commitment to Jesus. No, he's a testimony of Christ's commitment to him. Oh, do you see why Peter is the apostle of hope? Oh, friends, do you struggle? Do you struggle thinking, how can God use me? How can he? I have, I have messed up so many times. Do you think that your past is so terrible that it renders you useless? in the kingdom of God. But if that is you, if you are here tonight and you just look at yourself and you look at the mirror and all you see are blemishes on your soul, and then you see Peter, a man like you, a man like me, and then suddenly you begin to realize, we, I, have hope in Jesus. There's hope. But next here, you see that there is grace. Peter is writing, of course, to elect exiles. He says in verse 1, to God's elect exiles scattered through Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Uh, these five place names are actually four provinces in Asia Minor, which is in today's uh, modern-day Turkey. If you think of Turkey, if you've ever been throughout that region, uh, you will have a good idea of this area. Probably these represent the basic route that this letter took throughout Asia Minor. And 
Peter was targeting uh, five central hubs where ministry was taking place to Christians who were dispersed throughout the Mediterranean region. These were cultural hubs. These were centers of Christian impact and influence in Asia Minor. But what's more important than the places here, I think, are the people. Peter calls them elect exiles. It's a remarkable phrase. And I think the point is this. Dear friends, you may be a stranger to the world, but you are known by God. All right, these are elect exiles. They are forgotten. They have been uprooted. They have been dispersed. Nobody knows them, nobody sees them, nobody wants them, and yet they are known by God. Strangers to the world, known by God, elect exiles, chosen pilgrims. Right? Perhaps you feel that way. Maybe you are in school. Right, and, and you go to school or you go to youth group even, perhaps, and everyone looks over you. Everyone passes over you. And now here you see Peter saying, to you, the elect exiles, you are seen, you are known by God. Maybe you're at work and your employer passes over you. You are forgotten by all and yet seen by God. Peter makes this point again in verses 17 to 19 of chapter 1. He says, If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited by your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but the precious blood of Jesus Christ. You see this again in chapter 2, verse 11 where he addresses them as sojourners and exiles who are to conduct themselves as people who have been redeemed by God's grace. Now, the word sojourner here can be translated uh, stranger or pilgrim. The idea here is that these are people who, while having earthly residence in places like Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Bithynia, their true permanent residence is, of course, in heaven. Their passports read, of course, not citizens of Cappadocia, but their passport in one sense reads citizens of the celestial city. You belong to God. As the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 11, to the aliens and strangers on earth, you long for a better country. One of the things that happens when you grow as a Christian is you begin to ache for the new heaven and new earth. You long for your faith to become sight where you can finally be at home. You see, as exiles like Abraham so long ago, we live between the gap of promise and fulfillment, don't we? We live in that tension where our hope is in something that is unseen. But you have to realize the most real thing in the world in your life is unseen. It's in Jesus. The things that are seen are fading away and falling apart. 
but your world is oriented by something that is concrete in Christ. And so here you see Peter is beginning to minister to these chosen strangers in the world. He wants them to know that they have not been forsaken, they have not been overlooked, but that they are known by God. Dear friends, that's important for you tonight here at Christ Church Presbyterian, right? How many people pass by? How many people, right? How many people? Dozens, right? Hundreds, thousands of people, right? Day in, day out, day, day out, pass by and don't even know you exist here, right? But you are seen by God. And God is using this congregation to do his work in this place for his glory. But why actually does Peter Peter write this letter? Well, he writes this letter to give encouragement. As one old Scottish commentator says, he writes it to establish them in believing, direct them in doing, and comfort them in suffering. Isn't that great? To establish them in believing, direct them in doing, and comfort them in suffering. Actually, you see this throughout the letter. For example, in chapter 4, verse 19, Peter says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to the faithful Creator while doing good. There, Peter is comforting them in suffering, establishing them in the faith, and directing them to do good. You have this same emphasis here at the end of chapter 5 in 1 Peter 5, where he says in verse 12, I have written briefly to you, exhorting, or perhaps even better translated, encouraging and declaring that this is the true grace of God, stand firm in it. So Peter is writing this letter to encourage Christian pilgrims and to remind them of their obligation to testify to others of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? That's ministry, to encourage and to testify. Like, you want to know what gospel ministry is about? It's to encourage and to testify, to encourage the beleaguered and brokenhearted and to testify to those who do not know Jesus Christ of the hope of glory that's found in him, to testify, to encourage. That ultimately is the gospel ministry, to comfort and to counsel. And so Peter here is trying to encourage, encourage these pilgrims. Well, how does he do so? Well, I want to draw three brief words of application. First, Peter encourages these pilgrims by testifying to the sovereign work of the triune God. We see this right at the very beginning. And one of the things I love about this epistle is how Peter just puts the spotlight on the triune God. He moves their eyes from the visible 
to the invisible. He gets their eyes off themselves and off their circumstances, and he fixes their eyes on the triune God. It's one of the most glorious Trinitarian statements we have in all the Bible. And Peter is trying to encourage these dispersed pilgrims to remember God's work in their lives. He's trying to encourage them to behold the work of the heavenly Father. Notice here, it is the Father who foreknew you before the foundation of the world. He set his love on you. He never falters. He never changes. He knows your steps. He knows your plans. He knows your struggles. He knows your anxieties. He knows your difficulties. He knows you. See, right, your heavenly Father who will never reject you if you come to him and his Son. Behold your Father who loves you. Who loves you? And then he says, behold, behold the Spirit of God who sanctifies. It's a glorious thing, isn't it? When you look at your own life and you see how far you have to go. You look at your own life and you see those blemishes, your shortcomings. And then Peter is trying to remind you of the work of the Holy Spirit who more and more conforms you into the image of Christ. We love Romans 8, 28, right? All things work together for good to those who love God and who are called according to his purposes, right? But what is the good? It actually doesn't say all things are good, does it? Because there's a lot in life that is not good, and perhaps some of you can testify to that. But what is the good? And you see that in Romans 8, 29, that Paul says that God takes even the worst things in your life and uses it for good, which is conformity into the image of Christ. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit, right? That God takes even your trials and tribulations and through the Holy Spirit sanctifies you, grows you more and more, bit by bit, into the image of Christ. What a glorious thing that God uses your suffering to make you more like Jesus. Consider today the work of the Holy Spirit who enables you now to call upon your heavenly Father, who enables you now to remember the promises of God. And then, of course, remember the work of the Holy Spirit and the Lord Jesus Christ himself for the obedience of Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. Trust and obey, for there is no other way, right? You're called to follow Jesus, but when you do, you're confronted with your own disobedience, and when you're confronted with your own disobedience, you need to be reminded again of the blood of Christ that is sufficient to cover your sins. Oh, praise God for the blood of Christ that is sufficient to assuage the wrath of God for my sins. Right? Constantly reminding each other of the sufficiency of the work of Christ on your behalf. So Peter is saying, no matter what you are going through, look to the unshakable work of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the one true and living God on your behalf. Next here, Peter encourages these pilgrims 
by testifying to the true grace of God and the abundant peace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is that undeserved embrace that God gives you in Jesus. Peace is the confidence that no longer are you at war with God, but you are at one with Him. You belong to Him, and He will never reject you. There is peace. Peace. Peace for those in Jesus Christ. There may be an abundance of pain in your life, but there's a greater abundance of peace in Christ. Right, Peace, even amidst difficulty and hurt and trauma and anguish, there is peace for you in Christ. And then finally and thirdly, Peter wants you to be encouraged, right? Peter is encouraging these pilgrims by testifying to them that they are not alone, that they are not alone. Look again at chapter 5, verses 12 and 13 or really 12 to 14. And notice the people that Peter is mentioning. He mentions Silvanus or Silas, who you often meet in the book of Acts. He is a faithful brother. He mentions the chosen people who are in Babylon. We're not sure who they are, but they, like these Christian pilgrims, have been displaced. This is the chosen church in Babylon. Third, there is Mark, John Mark, who wrote the gospel and who is considered a son in the faith to Peter. Then he encourages one another, greet one another with a kiss of love. And then he's writing to all of you that you might have peace. In other words, what is he doing? Once again, he's encouraging these dear Christians that they are not alone. You have each other, and you have saints all over the globe who are with you. It's one of the great things that Peter does in this letter is that he reminds people of the plight of other Christians throughout the world. You are not alone. One of the great doctrines of the church is this idea of the communion of the saints, that we are united to all who are united in Christ. And we are part of a global church. And so, dear friends, what you are doing today is significant. It is part of the work of the ascended Lord Jesus Christ. And you are doing His work with His people all over the globe. And so, dear friends, understand that you are not alone But God has given you his grace, his mercy, and peace that you might have hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.